0: As we gather this morning, we recognize that that we are at Palm Sunday. We are a week away from Easter Sunday, and we recognize on the Sunday every year, Christ's entry into the city. And so if you look at Matthew 21, what we see there is, is Christ's entry. And it's pretty amazing. I mean... Uh, every time I've, I've ever been away, I've always kind of built up this idea of what a homecoming should look like, what this idea should look like for me, what it should look like for my followers or family. Um, the only followers I have are 60 or 70 people on Twitter that are sadly um, sadly disappointed every morning they wake up and I've yet to tweet anything out that's, that's worthy for them to repeat um, in a limited number of characters but probably because I I traveled so much as a child. I mean, I started uh, with my family because I was three and wanted to stay at home. Um, But when they moved to Norway when I was three, I always got to to fly into airports and we would see people waiting at the gate. And it didn't matter which city I was flying into, I wanted someone at that gate for me. Now, you've got to clear security and all that stuff now, but you used to actually have your family waiting at the gate. And I remember we would land in Atlanta and I mean, I'm back in the States now, and so I'm looking, I'm like, I could have family anywhere. They could be anywhere in Atlanta. Obviously, I, I wasn't very good at geography as a five and six-year-old. Didn't recognize that, that Georgia and Louisiana are far enough apart that family's not gonna meet me at the gate in Atlanta, and then meet me in the gate at Shreveport, okay? But every time we would land, I'd run off the jetway and be like, Grandma, Grandma. Ah. And then we landed land in Shreveport and we'd come off and she'd be there. And um, as a child, you, I thought McDonald's chicken nuggets were the greatest thing in the world. Uh, we didn't have them. We didn't, we didn't have a McDonald's in Aberdeen. We didn't have a McDonald's until the second time I lived in Norway. And even the second time I lived there, they didn't have chicken nuggets on the menu. They had the North Sea menu, which is great if you want a cod sandwich. But uh, when you want some chicken nuggets and you haven't had some in about a year, That 20-piece chicken nugget, mmm. I'm sure it's not very good now, but at the time, man, it was good. And so when I'd come through, she'd say, you know what we're going to do? And she'd hand me a Hershey's chocolate bar, and she'd say, we're going to go to McDonald's. We're going to get that 20-piece nugget. And I would just, just saliva's just pouring out. Oh, man, that's good stuff. The fanfare is what I wanted. I wanted this recognition that I had come back, that, that my Returns should be celebrated. I'm I'm six at this point. Everything's all about me. But the interesting thing is when we see Jesus' triumphal entry here in Matthew 21, he gets that. He gets the fanfare. He comes back in. He's he's riding on this donkey. And, And look at the way people respond to him. It says verse 8 of chapter 21, it says, Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, Jesus got this tremendous greeting. They laid down their coats, they laid down these, these tree branches. They're chanting, they're crying out, there's this fervor building up. Verse 10 tells us the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus that has come from Nazareth of Galilee. When Jesus comes back to the city, there's this Anxious anticipation. Everybody has seen him heal. They've seen tremendous signs. When they see him come through the gate, they are ecstatic. They lay everything down at his feet. They're crying out, This is him. Hosanna in the highest. But they're missing it. You see, they have this conception of who Jesus is, of what he has come to do, of how he's going to work in their lives. And what we find as we continue to track with that narrative is they completely miss it. Now let's flash back. Let's flash back to early in Jesus' ministry, John chapter three, and this is where we'll walk through today. This is the famous account of Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus shows us just how bad that he too will miss it. The passage opens up, and we recognize that Jesus has already been doing signs. He has turned the water to wine at the, the wedding in Cana. Other people have seen the signs and the wonders that he's done. And in fact, we read in verse 1 of chapter 3 that this is why Nicodemus has come. It said, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2 This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus tracks down Jesus. We don't know why he came at night. Some people say it's because Nicodemus was scared. He didn't want to be ostracized. Some people say, it it's because Jesus was so busy during the day or Nicodemus was so busy during the day. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. What we do know is it was night. We, we presume, upon a reading of the text, that this is a somewhat personal, intimate meeting between the two of them, that other people aren't there. But we recognize that Nicodemus is using the first person plural, right? He says, we know. Now, we don't know if this is Nicodemus coming to them and saying, look, me and my buddies in the Sanhedrin, we recognize something different about you. Or if he's saying, look, us, we, the people surrounded with me, we don't know but we, what we do know is that God is with you. Now, Nicodemus is getting it right, isn't he? Is God with Jesus? Yeah. Now, you've read the end of the story, and so you know that Jesus is God. But let's give Nicodemus some credit. He recognizes him as rabbi. Nicodemus comes up to this guy who everybody else would assume is illiterate. Jesus is part of a working class family. He's not learned. He's not educated. He didn't go to a prep academy. Nicodemus holds the equivalent of a PhD and comes up to Jesus and effectively says, "Uh, Dr. Jesus, he's very kind. He extends this title to Jesus, refers to him as teacher, and says, look, we recognize that, that God is abiding in you. He's doing something special with you because you couldn't have turned that water to wine. You couldn't have healed those people. You couldn't have done these things outside of God's provision. That's pretty astute. He's pretty with it. Look how Jesus responds. Verse three. Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. He, he endorses what Nicodemus has said. He said, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this had to have caught Nicodemus off guard. Nicodemus was a teacher. He knew the Bible. He knew the law. He knew this understanding of what the prophets had foretold. He knew this understanding, and he was called upon to teach Israel. And so he lays it out there. He endorses Jesus in some of a degree, and how does Jesus respond to him? says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. No, just think about that. Nicodemus' teaching, his understanding this whole time had been drawn that he is showing people how to see the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the business he was in. The business, the, the market that he was working in was showing people how to become the people of God. And here Jesus tells him that unless he is born again, he can't see it. Jesus effectively tells Nicodemus, You're not going to be able to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. Well, Nicodemus asks what would seem to be an obvious question. He says, Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Offering further commentary, he says, Can can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and, and probably what was a pretty perplexing thing. Jesus had told him he had to be born again, and what's Nicodemus's response? Look, my mom's a sweet gal, but I don't think she's down for this. <laughs> Jesus, I'm pretty sure I go home and say, Mom, you're never going to believe it. I met this guy named Jesus, and I talked to him, and this is going to sound crazy. Go with me. Because he says, I can see the kingdom of God. I've just got to be born again. And she says, oh, Nick. Oh, Nick. There's a reason we only have one child. Childbirth without anesthesia. There's, there's, there's a reason you're an only child. This doesn't sound very appealing, does it? For Nicodemus or for his mother. He was thinking in terms of, of this, this physical birth. He couldn't get his mind outside of his teaching. He couldn't understand what Jesus was drawing at. So he's thinking in terms of physical. But imagine if, 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 if you hadn't grown up in a church setting. Somebody comes to you for the first time and says, look, Zach, you want to you see the kingdom? Zach, you want to be saved? You need to be born again. You've never heard this before. Might your mind go to the same place that Nicodemus does? Might you have the same issues, the same problems that Nicodemus does? Now, Jesus doesn't leave him in confusion, right? It, it, the, the, the narrative doesn't end there. It's not that Nicodemus says, no, how does this work? And Jesus is like, you are worthless. You're helpless. I'm, I'm, I'm done with you. If that's where you're gonna go with this, if you can't think in a higher plane than that, let's just end the conversation. No, Jesus is, is bringing Nicodemus along. He is exposing truth into Nicodemus' life. In some sense, he is correcting Nicodemus's reading Of the Bible. So Jesus answered. Again he says truly, truly. And offering a commentary on what it is to be born again. He says unless one is born of water and spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says you want to know what it is to be born again. It's got nothing to do with with being birthed by your mother again. You want to know what it is to be born again? It's got nothing to do with an exercise of the flesh. It's something that man can affect on his own. He says, this thing happens in two ways. You're born by the water and the spirit. You're born by water and spirit. Now, what is Jesus getting at? Now, you and I aren't as, as equipped as Nicodemus was to deal in the Old Testament. I'm sure there are some in this church that have memorized large passages of the Old Testament, large chunks of the Old Testament, but by and large, very few of us would be considered Old Testament scholars. But Old Old Testament is what Nicodemus specialized in. So Jesus tells him, you want to be born again? You need to be born of water and spirit. This is what Jesus was making a commentary on. Jesus was was trying to create in Nicodemus this connection that is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now in Ezekiel 36 and picking up in verse 25, the prophet says these words, speaking from God. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's where we see the water coming in. God says, I'm going to take my water, I'm going to pour it out upon you. It's going to cleanse you. It's going to make all the filth go away. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put them within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully obey my rules." Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's stuck in the terms of the physical. Jesus tells him, you've got to be born of spirit and water. And where does he take him? He takes him to Ezekiel, where God comes to the Israelites and says, look, you guys are headed in the wrong direction, but things are going to change. Behold, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to anoint you with water. I'm going to wash away all the uncleanliness in your life. Once I've got you clean, I'm going to send my spirit, and it's going to come into your life. It's going to take your heart of stone. It's going to take your obstinance. It's going to take your stubbornness. It's going to take your pride. It's going to take your wanderings, and it's going to transform it and just make it a whole new creation. Now, this isn't something the Israelites could affect on their own. It's not something Nicodemus could affect on his own, even though he was a man of tremendous intellect. Jesus tells them. It says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. He says, that which is born, verse 6, of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus is further driving the nail in this idea that Nicodemus could affect this thing on his own. He was one who had given his life to teaching, to imparting knowledge And so he's thinking in terms of the physical. And that's why Jesus says, look, I'm not talking about physical birth. What I'm talking about is something that that God is going to rend. What I'm talking about is something God is going to do for you, to you, how he's going to change you. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. God is drawing a distinction between the action of God and the action of man. Apparently Nicodemus had quite the surprised look on his face. Verse 7, Jesus responds to him and says, Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Apparently Nicodemus hears this, here's Jesus' explanation of it, and stands there with mouth agape. had that expression a lot when I was in math, in in pre-cal, in in geometry, Uh, really back to addition and subtraction. Once it got beyond those, I started thinking, "Ah, you, you lost me. You said something about a coefficient. I don't, oh man. And so I ended up as a liberal arts major. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He is dumbfounded. Jesus tells him quite plainly, look, you need to move past this. Don't marvel. Don't get stuck on this. Move beyond this. Don't get stuck on this idea of what it is to be born again. So seeking to explain it, he says in verse 8, he says, look, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound. Nicodemus says, I get that. He relates it to the earth. He says, look, the wind comes along. You hear it. You see the leaves moved along. It blows where it wishes. You have no control over the wind, Nicodemus. You have no control over it. You can observe it, but you've got no control over it. You, know, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. He turns it. He says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is drawing hard and fast on this idea that Nicodemus cannot affect his own salvation. He cannot affect his own right standing before God. So Jesus draws on a concept that Nicodemus should be readily acquainted with, wind. says, Nicodemus, take wind, for example. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you can hear it. This imperceptible movement of the spirit can't be manipulated by man, but this movement of the spirit is wholly in the realm of God and under his control. Nicodemus still isn't getting it. Verse nine, he says to Jesus, or he asks this question, he says, Jesus, how can these things be? And that's just saying, look, you're telling me not to marvel over what it is to be born again? but I'm really having a hard time with this. You say it's physical, or it's not physical, and it's spiritual. I'm still not getting it. I understand the wind thing. I'm with you on that. But when you made the jump to spiritual, I just... Jesus, Nicodemus asked, he said, Jesus, I don't understand this. How can these things be? Jesus responds... Verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Now that, my friends, is the moment when Nicodemus is likely very, very embarrassed. Being at the height of his field, with all the accolades and support that one could have, He's going through this intense question and answer period with Jesus. He doesn't get it. He's got this expression on his face that communicates bewilderment. And Jesus says to him, and you're the best that Israel can offer. He said, Nicodemus, you grew up in church. You know all these things. You were the first one to win the Bible drills. You were intimately involved in all these details, and you have no idea how these things work out. In essence, he's asking the question, what hope does the nation of Israel have? Look at Jesus' response, verse 11. Jesus says, verse 11. He says, "Truly truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen." Now think about that in light of what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus that we know you are a teacher come from God. What does he base it on? He says, "We know you're a teacher come from God because we've seen you do stuff. Jesus, in some sense, is responding to Nicodemus in verse 11. He says, we speak of what we know. He says, Nicodemus, you came to me, and you spoke on behalf of what you have seen and testify. I'm doing the same thing. Jesus' responds to Nicodemus says, Nicodemus, I'm doing the same thing. I'm speaking to you of what we know, of what, what Jesus knows. And Jesus is bearing witness to what he has seen. But look at his conclusion. He says, but Nicodemus, you don't receive our testimony. Effectively, Jesus is making the argument that Nicodemus is not extending the same privileges to Jesus as Jesus extended to Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Jesus received, he understood, he took in those things that Nicodemus had said, and in fact, they were true. But as Jesus has laid out and explained to Nicodemus how he can see the kingdom, how he can enter into the kingdom, Nicodemus doesn't get it. In essence, he's rejecting Jesus' testimony. Jesus carries on and really enters into a monologue in 11 through 13. 13. He says, Nicodemus, no one has entered, no one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is making a reference to the proverb, and He is telling Nicodemus that He alone is uniquely qualified to make these comments. He alone is uniquely qualified to offer this commentary on how you see the kingdom and how you enter the kingdom. And the sum substance and total of what He has told him is that it is a work. Of God that accomplishes, accomplishes these things. It's not a work of man. It's not accomplished through knowledge. It's not a work of man. It's not accomplished through effort. But it is a work of God. It is accomplished through the working of His Spirit. Now look at how Jesus wraps this up in 14 and 15. He says in 14 and 15, He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is an odd story, and if you are quickly reading through the Bible, you might have missed this in Numbers. Flip over with me to Numbers 21. Let's read 4 through 9. Jesus is making a reference to what, something that happened during the Exodus, and we get a fuller picture of it here, turning over to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. We're reading, it says, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. If you've ever been on a road trip with with small children, you know what it is when people get impatient on the way. But the Israelites were experts at demonstrating impatience on the way. Said the people spoke against God and against Moses. Notice the pair, the pair there, they spoke against God and Moses. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this, this manna, this worthless food. We don't like this stuff, we want something else. It's like riding with my kids and they're like, Dad, I want a snack, and you're like, here's some animal crackers. I don't want animal crackers. But it sounds more like this, I don't want animal crackers. And you spin around, you're like, what in the world? It's terrifying. Man, that's crazy. They don't, they don't like this worthless food. They're complaining, they're bemoaning the fact, they think oh, things are so much better. Elsewhere, they're complaining about this. They said, did we not have pots of meat back in Egypt? Moses could have said, yeah, but you were slaves. You had all the meat you wanted to eat, but you were slaves. They've forgotten the great redemption that God has worked, the great freedom that he has effected for them. So they complain, they moan. They said, it would be better off if we were dead. This food's terrible. I'm so tired of eating it. Verse 6, God sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. These people rebelled against God, and God moved. These people came out in opposition of God. They weren't just complaining, but they were actually opposing God. They were saying of God's will and his development for their life, this isn't good enough for us. We wish that you had left us as slaves in Egypt. They rebelled against God. And he moves in judgment. Many of the people died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken out against you and against the Lord. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. We see Moses interceding on behalf of the people. The judgment of God is met out on them. They recognize their sin. They turn to Moses and say, Moses, can you do something? So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Verse nine, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the pole. And If the serpent bent anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You see what Jesus is saying there? It's just like the people rebelled. They were heading in their own direction. They were doing their own thing. And God visited judgment upon them. But he also presented them with a way of forgiveness with a stay of his judgment. So that everyone who was bitten by a snake, if they would turn and they would look at that thing that Moses lifted up on the pole, they would see that snake and and would sow and would live. See, it's interesting. Moses goes through and he does that and all those who were bit, that turn and, and they set their gaze on this pole with this snake, laid on it they saw that and they lived and we know that the israelites kept it they kept the snake they took it along with them and so around about hezekiah's reign we read in second kings Starting in chapter 18 and verse 4, Hezekiah is going through and he is cleaning house. He is tearing down idols and he's establishing an orthodox orthodox response to who God is. Verse 4 says, he removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. See, some of those there, they saw the work of God, and they attributed salvation to this image. They attributed healing to this thing they looked at. They had forgotten that it was God's instruction that had placed the thing there. They forgot that it was God's provision that had, in fact, healed them. And they set their gaze, they set the object of their focus and their worship on a thing created. Jesus gets on the donkey, he rides it in the city. People come before him, and they've seen the signs, They've heard all the amazing things that he's done. Jesus is the guy you want to come to a party. He can turn water to wine. Jesus is the guy you want when you're feeling sick because he can make you well. Jesus is the guy who can take the lame and make them walk. Jesus is the one who can take the deaf and make them hear. Jesus is the one who can take the blind and let them see. They like that. They want that. And so they cry out, Hosanna to God in the highest. They have set their minds on this image of who they think that Jesus is. But it is crucifixion, the same crowd, the same crew that wanted the healing, they wanted the life enhancement, they did not want the sacrifice. They did not want the turmoil. They did not want the ostracism. So those who had once cried out with joy cried out instead, crucify. Those who had hailed his entrance with shouts of joy and proclamations of, 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 man, this is awesome, this is he, cried out, this is the one. This is the one we want crucified. Take him away. See, we recognize that there's this great danger there's this tremendous danger that we focus on the wrong Jesus. And they loved the Jesus of life enhancement. They loved the Jesus that, that bettered the things in their life, but they hated the Jesus that was on the cross. The Israelites wanted to be healed, so they looked at that bronze serpent, and it made their lives better, but they kept it thinking that it would be a good luck charm, that it would continue to transform and make their lives better. Some of us have lived our whole lives, and the only thing that we worship is this Jesus of life enhancement. And We put him up on our walls, we put him in our cars, we listen to him on the radio, and we like the Jesus of life enhancement, but we hate the Jesus of sacrifice. Moses calls the Israelites and says, look to the serpent, and so be healed. Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, whoever believes in him, whoever looks to the Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God is healed, not temporally, but eternally. This snake affected a mortal healing. Jesus affects an immortal healing. The healing afforded by the bronze snake, it, it, it made them well. The healing afforded by the Son when he's lifted high makes us saved. See, but it's not because he continued to hang on that cross. It's because he came down off that cross and he now sits at the right hand of God, high and exalted. What we see in this isn't that the Son of Man will be lifted up, drawing solely to a reference of the cross, but that the Son of Man must be lifted up to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus is reigning, and that is how he's able to overcome sin. You see the snake which Hezekiah took and rightly broke, Jesus too was broken. Hezekiah broke it because the people were, were, were attributing to it something special, but God broke Christ. He laid our sin, he laid our shame, our pride, our hate, our envy, all on the Son. And then he poured out his wrath on him. And Jesus stood there receiving the wrath of Christ and then he he hung there receiving the jeers of humanity even those who had cried out glory to God in the highest. Jesus is hung on the cross and so receives the wrath of God poured out but Jesus sitting exalted frees us from the slavery of sin. We must recognize who Jesus is. Don't let us pursue the errors of all those who stood at the gates and cried out, come make my life better. Come show me how how I can reign in this life. But we need to be those who cry out, God, reign over my life. God, help me to find myself in submission to you. All those who look at Jesus, high and exalted, believe in him, And as a result of that, have eternal life. It's not a better life here and now. It's an eternal life forevermore. Let me pray for us.